Are you ready? I am. Let's do it. Thank you for joining us on The Change Artist, where we bring our listeners stories and great advice for leading and following through change from business leaders who are making a difference in their organizations. Here on The Change Artist, our motto is, if change is the only constant in life, then let's do it better. So let's jump right in. Pamela, what is your top piece of advice for leading through change? Well, thank you so much, Alyssa, for having me on your podcast. I think change is the only constant. So it's important, I think, to share with each other what we know and have learned through our careers regarding how to affect change. I I think for me personally, I think the most critical part about affecting change is really being very clear about the purpose for the change and the benefits that it will bring. It really comes down to vision. You have to be able to communicate a clear vision of what the world will look like post that change. And it can be a big change. You know, it could be trying to move a university up in the rankings or trying to have, you know, gain market share and a company might be your goal or objective. It may be better patient satisfaction. It may be to simplify work processes. So change can have lots of benefits, big and small, but it's just really important, I think, to communicate a clear vision of what you're trying to achieve through the change for those in particular who have to implement the change. You know, I I serve on a corporate board that is going through what they are calling a structural transformation right now. And they've spent a lot of time and money with McKinsey to reorganize the company in a way they think will be more effective. And and there are going to be a lot of employees impacted by this change in structure. And so just yesterday, I got a communication that was going out to all employees and stakeholders. And it really talked about how the restructure would benefit the company and its people. And they were very specific. It will reduce complexity. It will empower our teams. It will support our growth goals. It will support our people with the resources they need to do their work to innovate and better serve our customers. So, you know, it's going to be disruptive, but from the outset, they're communicating the benefits and they'll continue to communicate those benefits throughout the change process. I love that. Now, For those of you who don't know her, in addition to serving on a number of corporate and not-for-profit boards, Pamela Davies is President Emerita and Professor of Strategy at Queen's University of Charlotte. Now, I want to dig in a little bit to articulating what the world's going to look like after the change. How do you talk about, then, the things that you don't know about the future? How do you balance some certainty around what your desired outcomes are with places where it's a little squishier, places where you're not as, as clear? Well, I think what it really boils down to, and I said earlier, it is around this vision. And vision is not a certainty. You know, you have a vision for the future that is desirable, that would, it is attractive, but it, it depends on factors you control and those you don't control. But that's no excuse for the absence of a vision, for a belief in where your organization or your team or this project um, can take you. So I've been working on this leadership book and I have certain little sayings that I pull out in this leadership book. And I love to talk about Andy Stanley, who um, Andy Stanley is a senior pastor of North Point Community Church located in Atlanta, Georgia. And he you know, started with 20 people and built this church up to you know, 30,000 people across like, six or eight branches or something in Atlanta. And I saw him speak one time on kind of the power of vision to affect change. And he talks about how the vision has to be compelling, it has to be motivating, it has to be clear, it has to be communicated over and over and over and over again. 
And he said, from his context of being a pastor, he said, because if there's one thing that I've learned, that if it's misty in the pulpit, it's a fog in the pews. And I, I think that's so true. So I don't think, I think when you cast a vision for a project or an organization or an initiative, you know, there's always risk, there's always uncertainty, but that shouldn't inhibit you from, you know, sharing a bold vision for what this change could do. And have you seen a difference in the way you approach the presentation of that vision on the corporate boards you serve on and the not-for-profit work that you've done, as well as the university work that you've done? No, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about how how does the change process differ across these different organizations that I've been kind of privileged to work with throughout my career. And, you know, I think a lot of people think we have the most resistant, challenging workforce or you know, it, uh, of anyone kind of thing. So as a university president, you're always saying, oh my gosh, I've got this huge set of tenured faculty that you have to get to come along with you. And often you don't have sufficient incentives and they have lots of ability to resist. So that's a pretty challenging environment, but I also serve on the board of a, you know, 12 plus billion dollar healthcare system. And if you talk to that CEO, he goes, oh, we have all these docs and medical professionals that you you just, you know, are very difficult to change. And then then I think about, I, you know, I chaired the YMCA of the USA, so the national Y. We have 800 associations, 2,500 branches, and all those folks think they got the best idea and they run their own show. So if you want to create a change at Y of the USA, that's gonna have a national impact on things like childhood literacy, the achievement gap, chronic disease prevention, et cetera. And you need these 800 independent associations and 2,500 branches to come together to affect a change that will have a national impact. I mean, there's a lot of persuasion that goes on. (laughs) You just can't order it done, right? And I think even in corporate environment today, Everybody wants the best talent, right? And the only way to attract the best talent is to have a work environment that, in which people feel engaged and that they can participate in and they're part of and they believe in. So yeah, there's different organizations and different challenges across different organizations, but change has to be managed very carefully no matter where you are. And there is gonna be a fair amount of resistance and it's responsibility of the leader to provide that vision, to provide the incentives, to put the accountability into place, all the things that you need to really affect change. And what I would say across those organizations is the common denominator is all those organizations I referred to have really great leaders who are authentic and transparent and don't involve people and engage people simply because it'll make them feel good and then maybe they'll follow, but rather because they believe they have something to contribute. And I just think in today's world, this kind of authentic, transparent, caring leadership style is what you need. So it's interesting as we talk about leaders, we talk about authenticity, we talk about setting the vision and leading the change from the top, I've certainly encountered organizations where their change is sort of embraced and the vision is embraced from top to bottom. And that's where change actually happens. That's where we live into the promise of that change and the promise of that vision. I've also encountered organizations where there's a really clear vision being communicated from the top, but it's a vision that as the further away you get from the top, the more skepticism you start to hear and the more sarcasm you start to hear in the replaying of that vision. And and you don't have that engagement. You don't have that buy-in. So based on your work with organizations, what is the critical factor that differentiates organizations where 
the vision is embraced. And organizations where you have a CEO who's talking vision and an organization, it's just letting him talk. And there are plenty of those, Alyssa. I would I, I would say I've observed that as well. I think, you know, I, I always say that the, the a CEO has three major responsibilities. The first is to kind of cast the vision for the organization. And should that vision be created through a participatory process that engages lots of people? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, it's a CEO's job to say, here's where we're headed. Come with me. You know, so casting vision is one of the key responsibilities of CEO. The second responsibility is to bring the people to bear, the talent, the team to bear that can make that vision a reality. And they have to be the kind of people who let that flow through their organizations, just like the CEO lets it flow through his or her immediate organization. So you have to have the right people who will hire the right people who will carry the message. It's all about culture, isn't it? Like it, it you know, that's, essentially what it is. So if you have a, a strong, a, a, you know, compelling vision, you have a strong and talented team who hire strong and talented people, then, you know, as a CEO, I feel it's, at, particularly at a university environment, I feel like it's my responsibility to make sure they have the resources to do the job. So if you have the vision, you have the talent, make sure they have the resources to do their job. And that's often a failure, even in a corporate environment, you know, initiatives are under-resourced, it is a, it's a great frustration. There's this great model of strategic change that says, well, if you want to affect strategic change, you have to have vision plus uh, abilities, plus uh, resources, plus incentives, plus action plans. And then it goes, the model goes through and it plucks one of those out and says, well, if you don't have vision, what's the result? You have confusion. People aren't sure what they're supposed to be doing. If you don't have the abilities, if you set a vision that your people aren't capable to implement, you have anxiety. People get worried and anxious. If you pluck out resources, you have frustration because you, you know what the vision is. You think it's a great vision. I, I know how to do this, but I don't have the resources to do it. Um, if you don't have incentives, you have slow progress. If you don't have action plans, you get false starts. So, you know, it, it, the whole package has to be there. But I still would argue that it starts with vision and it flows through the organization. And, you know, Alyssa, I know you've done a lot of work with a lot of organizations. Culture kind of eats strategy for lunch, right? So it's it's really about having a culture where sarcasm and skepticism isn't the cancer that keeps the organization from performing. I had a, a chaplain at the university one time and she was taking a team of students on an international trip or something. And I said, wow, how's, how's it looking? You know, they, they went every year to Guatemala or something. And she said, oh, I have a great group. I have a great group. The Sark jar is almost empty. And I'm like, what is a Sark jar? And she said, well, we, we have a, a little jar that we have in all our meetings. And if you say something sarcastic, you have to put a dollar in the jar. And she said, I explained to him that sarcasm, the root words of sarcasm are to cut the flesh. We talk a lot about how the damaging effects of sarcasm. And I went home that night and told my husband who finds sarcasm, his sarcasm, humorous. <laughs> we all find our sarcasm, our sarcasm. <laughs> and, and entertaining. I think so. I think so. But that changed his life. I mean, when he heard that to cut the flesh, it's like, why would you ever wish to do that to your wife or to your children or to anyone you love or care about or work with? I came to a point in my life maybe 20 years ago where I thought, I don't have to work with negative, sarcastic, 
skeptical people. I'm going to, you know, I need a contrarian or two. My bias is for optimism. So I do need people who will bring realism to the team. But, you know, that can be really poisonous to change if you if you have a culture where that's prevalent. So I want to dig into the, this idea of finding your contrarian, right? Divorcing objection from sarcasm and constructively finding your foil and how you use that to clarify your message, to improve your ideas, to improve your thinking and your work. How do you think about constructively leveraging those contrarians in your life to not only build and and improve the work that you're doing, but also to build and improve the work of the organization as a whole? Yeah, that's a really good question, Alyssa. And I think you have to be intentional about that because we all like to surround ourselves with people like us. You know, that's the natural proclivity. And so you have to make sure that on your team, you have people who think differently, who have different a different lens on things. Um, I had a CFO, for example, who I wasn't all that eager to have a beer with, but God bless him. If I hadn't had him on the team, we probably would have run down the wrong path more than once. And he was definitely a contrarian and sometimes it irritated me, but I kept that to myself for the most part. And we tried to create a culture of a safe space. You know, like, and not only is it safe for you to speak your mind here, but we appreciate it. You know, it's valued. We all have a role to play. There's a, there's a book written a long time ago by De Bono was his name. I can't think of his first name, but it's called The Six Hats of Strategic Thinking. And it's like a red hat, a white hat, a yellow hat. And he literally says the yellow hat is the optimist and the green hat is the idea person and the black hat is the contrarian or whatever. The magic of it is when you come into your team and you take your yellow hat thinker and say, today, I want you to be a black hat thinker and tomorrow, and you force people into different thinking modes. It, you know, it just can be an exercise you go through with your team for the benefit of development. You know, you don't, you don't have to be talking about a real issue, but just force them to look at an issue with a different lens, with a different hat. We would do that in our team sometimes, but, you know, we're all most comfortable in the hat we, <laughs> we wear. So make sure you got all the hats around the table That's like, and make sure you create an environment where they feel that they're safe and they can speak what they truly believe. And so what are some of those really tactical things that you do on your teams to create an environment of psychological safety where disagreement over the work is okay, is encouraged, is safe, is productive, and doesn't descend into disagreement and personal conflict? You know, I've, I've had a number of teams over the course of the last 20 years, right? So I've had some really high-functioning teams, and I've had a dysfunctional team here or there. So I, I certainly don't do it perfectly. I, I want to make that point. But I typically have had a leadership coach for our team. And so we have quarterly offsides and maybe twice a year, the leadership coach would come and work us through some team development stuff. We always had an offsite retreat at a beautiful in a beautiful location for a couple of days where we really had the opportunity to bond on on different levels than just, you know, sitting around my conference room table in my <clears throat> president's office. Um, so I was pretty intentional about it. The other thing is I really encourage people to contribute to other people's space. And that was appreciated in some cases and not appreciated in others. But I, I had a green hat thinker. I had a, I actually am working on this strategic thinking model and there's the ideator in that model. <clears throat> and he was definitely an ideator. 
And he not only had many ideas about his own scope of work, but he had ideas about everybody's scope of work. And, you know, and we really encouraged him to offer those ideas. And, you know, as I said, some people accepted him more readily than others, particularly when they were new on the team, but eventually they began to understand that that, that was our culture. We did we did cross-functional contributions. And as a result, I think if I'd gotten hit by a car, I didn't have one person who could run the university. I had seven people who could run the university because they all knew about as much as I did. You know, I had a little more knowledge because I met with each of them individually, had maybe a little deeper knowledge of each of their functional areas. But the way we ran the team is was we ran the university as a team. With intentionality, you can create that environment. And I think it's terribly productive. And I've experienced the opposite. And I can tell you that's terribly unproductive. So I would opt for a more collaborative team. So I'd like to shift the lens here a little. Based on your experience, you know, what can you tell our listeners about advice for following through change? We're not always in a position to lead the change that we're involved in. Sometimes we're in the position of a follower. And what does it mean to follow really effectively to drive successful change from the follower seat? Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly um, as a follower, you need to alert the leader when there are entanglements or challenges that are impeding the implementation of the strategy. You know, it's your responsibility. The leader's often not in the trenches and their team often is. And so as problems come up, or if you have to course correct or whatever, it's your responsibility to make sure the leader knows about that. You know, I, I think a good follower is not sarcastic, but uses more pro- productive means of communicating their concerns or expressing different path forward. So I, you know, I think followers have a responsibility to have a bias for believing, but not blindly, you know, so it, so they're part of, determining what what can actually be happen happen so again just being honest and transparent in their views i love that bias for believing idea right and, uh, you're going in assumption is that things are going to work out and what can i do to make that happen have you seen this done really well in your experience yeah i think you know there have been times i uh, there was one circumstance where we had contemplating adding football at queens and I bring this up because it was one of the only issues where the senior leadership team was divided. Most of the time, we might have been divided and somewhere in the process, but we came together. But we got into the end of the process and we were not only divided, we had very strong opinions on both sides. And so when you get to that point, you know, somebody has to make a decision. And in this case, that was me. And I remember I sent them all a text and told them to meet me at a restaurant off campus at 1230, whatever. And we sat there and I said, we're not going to do football. And, you know, I know some of you think very strongly that we should, um, others don't. And, you know, but we just kind of processed that. And when we left that lunch, regardless of how they came in, they just felt heard. And they, I think they felt relieved that somebody made a decision in, in some ways, but the team's got to leave on the same page and somebody has to make a decision. Well, thank you, Pamela. This has been great. I know I've learned a lot and hopefully our listeners can take your advice and apply it to changes and transitions in their own organizations. If you'd like to bring these conversations to your organization, you can visit us at blueswiftconsulting.com. Thank you again, Pamela. Thank you, Alyssa. Have a great day.